We are in the Gospel of Mark. I would invite you to turn there in your copy. Some of you still use this thing called a print Bible with actual pages. And so if, if that's what you do, right, like me, then, then you can turn there or you can open up your phone and pull it up on the Version app, whatever works best for you. But we're going to tackle the first eight verses this morning. Uh, last week, you'll remember as we started this series that I started to just talk a little bit about Mark, our author, uh, who he was and when he wrote and what was his motivation for writing. So just to remind you of really how we ended the message last Sunday, Mark wrote his gospel so that his readers would know about Jesus, more importantly, know Jesus, and then follow Jesus. That was Mark's intent in writing his gospel. He's writing, we believe, Bible scholars believe that he is writing in the city of Rome as the companion of the apostle Peter. Uh, He's functioning as Peter's scribe and his interpreter. And so he's living with Peter. He knows Peter. They're ministering together. They're pastoring together. And he is writing to a Roman audience who is undergoing persecution at this time uh, because of an emperor named Nero who has blamed the church for everything that's gone wrong in the city of Rome. And Mark is writing into that persecution as a Roman citizen, writing to Roman Christians so that they would know the Lord and that they would follow the Lord more closely. So let's pick up the text. We're going to just look at the first eight verses this morning and follow along with me as I read this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of our God, church. So from the very first sentence, Mark writes here with a sense of urgency. Don't miss this. There's a story of magnificent gravity that he is compelled to convey, again, to Roman Christians, and then ultimately to us sitting here today, as this gospel has been studied and preached and taught for the last 2,000 years around the world, praise the Lord. How does this good news about Jesus begin? Just looking at these first eight verses that we're studying this morning. In this first passage, we see that it actually begins with the story of a messenger who came before Christ. We know him, of course, as John the Baptist. And that's where that old corny Baptist joke comes from. Well, we go all the way back to John. Well, no, not really. Our denomination can't really claim that. But John the Baptist, right here, he's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And Mark does not give us much biographical information 
He doesn't go much into John's backstory, if I could say it that way. Uh, If you want a little more of that, take a look at Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel is probably the best one to look at if you're looking at more information, uh, looking for more information about John the Baptist. However, Mark does convey four very important things to us in this passage concerning John, and that's where we're going to focus today. So let's start. We'll jump right in with those. What is the first important thing that Mark conveys about John? Here it is. The ministry of John the Baptist was the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel, and that's very important. Uh, you'll see a quote on the screen uh, by Dr. N.T. Wright. He's one of the preeminent, uh, especially New Testament, but Bible scholars living today. And Dr. Wright says this, the main thing Mark gets us to do in this opening passage is to sense the shock of the new thing that God is doing. DC Talk had it right all those years ago. God is doing a new thing. Okay, no Christian contemporary music fans in the room, apparently. All right, maybe a few of you. All right. Anyways, God is doing a new thing here, and Dr. Wright rightfully points that out. Now, this is not only the case for Mark, and and what I mean by that is he's not the only gospel author who sees John the Baptist's ministry as the beginning of the gospel. Actually, all of the gospel authors seem to realize the significance of John's baptism as being the commencement of the good news. It's being the very beginning of the gospel. Let me show you a, a couple of these. The first one is on the screen for you, Matthew eleven twelve, where Matthew records Christ, our Lord, saying, from the days of John the Baptist until now. It's a bookend. He's saying, from the days of John the Baptist until today, right? The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. I would love to delve off into a different message on just that verse, but I can't do that. See it for the reason I'm putting it on the screen for you to see it. They are looking, Jesus is saying, John's ministry, John's baptism of repentance is the beginning of the gospel. It's one bookend. It's where this all starts, this new thing that God is doing. Luke records for us, show you just a couple other passages from the other gospels. Luke records Jesus saying, the law and the prophets were until John... A bookend, the end of the Old Testament, Luke is saying, or Jesus is saying in Luke's gospel, the law and the prophets were until John, and since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Very interesting idea in these last two verses. Again, love to talk to you about it, but we don't have time, unless you guys can stay all afternoon. Is that cool? (laughs) Mixed response. I better just keep going with what I had planned. All right, so please notice in these verses... Jesus viewed John the Baptist's ministry as the beginning of the new thing that God was doing. That's what I want you to see from those two verses. Now, the Apostle John also wrote concerning John the Baptist, and that's there on the screen for you. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. John writes, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's talking, this is the Apostle John writing about John the Baptist. I know that can be confusing. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So again, here's the point for us to grasp at this time. All of the gospel authors, 
all of the gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, saw the ministry of John the Baptist as the very beginning of the gospel. That's number one. And our author, Mark, let's go back to our primary text here. Mark writes in verse one, the beginning of the gospel. How much clearer could he be? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Almost every single word in this sentence bears some kind of, uh, requires some kind of commentary. So let me walk you through these words very quickly. How about the word beginning? Beginnings are very significant. And often we love beginnings. If you're rigged like I am and you actually thrive on change, you, you're a little bit ADD. Anybody else a little bit ADD in the room? Okay. You love beginnings. It's something new. And most of us would say, well, at least if it's a good thing, right, we'd love new things, right? Beginnings are significant. That first moment when everything begins to change, when something new happens. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, the logos. The word, the logos was with God and the logos was God. Something new and exciting has occurred. And Mark is writing so that others will know about it. In the beginning, Mark writes, in the beginning of what? Of the gospel. Gospel means good news. Gospel means good news. Mark is writing to share the good news. Mark would have been taught the Old Testament scriptures as a little boy from, I'm sure, a very young age. And and he would have grown up knowing the worth that God had placed on proclaiming the good news. We see this so often in the Old Testament, the value of the proclamation of the good news. But really, we see it so clearly in Isaiah. So let me just show you a few verses from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. There's great value in the proclamation of the gospel, church. We need to live the gospel in front of the world. Amen? We need to love people and so live the gospel. But if we never proclaim the gospel, they will never know the gospel. Amen? And so we must be proclaimers of the gospel. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then I love this verse in Isaiah 61. This is the one that Jesus quotes one day in a synagogue when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And now Mark here in verse 1 is writing of the good news to those who will listen. And the ministry of John the Baptist marked the beginning of this. So what is the good news? Who is the good news about? Who is the gospel about? Mark makes it clear for his readers, Jesus Christ the Son of God. Jesus. Greek here, it's translated from the Greek word Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yehoshua. It's where we get our English name Joshua from. Joshua. We have a 
at least one Joshua in our church. This is where we get that from. It's the Greek and the Hebrew that we translate also into Jesus. And his name means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Christ, this is from the Greek word Christos. It was originally an adjective in Greek. It was an adjective. It meant anointed, or uh, the noun form would be the anointed one. But Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed. He is the very Son of God. So first of all, see this. The ministry of John the Baptist was the beginning of the gospel. The second point that I think we need to see here is that the ministry of John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We've already been touching on this as we've been looking at this, but this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 2 with me. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It's written here, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In the Old Testament church, there is prophecy concerning a messenger who is going to come before the Messiah. Isaiah writes very similarly to what we just read in Mark chapter 1, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then Jehovah says through the prophet Malachi, another prophetic word here, who who's prophesying the coming of this forerunner of the Messiah, but God says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. A little bit later in Malachi, you'll see chapter 4, verse 5 there for you. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now don't miss this. God says through Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. See, these prophecies all give testimony to the plan of God to send a forerunner for the Messiah. Israel was waiting. Israel was waiting for another faithful prophet like Moses to appear. Someone who would come before the Messiah to tell of his coming. And this is why, by the way, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist is asked, this is not in Mark's Gospel, as you scroll through those eight verses, you'll see this. This this account is not there, but if you looked at John, the Apostle John's account of this, John the Baptist is asked, who are you? The people ask him, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees ask him, who are you? And some say, are you Elijah? It's based on this verse in Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And, And what's John's response to that question in the Gospel of John? Well, those of you who have read that often know that he denies it. John the Baptist says he's not Elijah. And we know that he was not literally Elijah returned in the flesh because we know his story. Again, if you were to read Luke's account of John the Baptist, you would read that backstory and you would see that he was born of human parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, as that story unfolds. However, this is something that 
can be a little confusing for us when we put these gospel accounts together because in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that John was Elijah. And you see that passage for you in the screen, Matthew chapter 17, verses 12 through 13. The Lord said, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples, look at what they realize here. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. But Jesus says, Elijah has already come. And the disciples figure out, oh, he's talking about John the Baptist. So how should we understand what at first seems like a contradiction here. John the Baptist was not the literal Elijah returning from heaven, but he had come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was sent in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so the prophecy of Elijah's return from Malachi chapter 4 that we read was fulfilled in John's baptism and preaching. William Lane writes about this. He says, in retrospect, his appearance in the wilderness was the first, it was, I'm sorry, the most important event in the life of Israel for more than 300 years since the prophet Malachi. Here's John the Baptist, and this is the most significant thing, William Lane says, that happens in 300 years because John the Baptist comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah and serves as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Let's review real quick. First of all, the ministry of John the Baptist was the beginning of the gospel, point one. Number two, the ministry of John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then the third thing that I think we need to see here is that the ministry of John the Baptist was a new practice for a new purpose. This, again, is something, church, that God is doing that's completely new. Look at uh, verses 4 through 6 that I have for you there. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And for the life of me, I've never really been able to figure out why that last verse is in there. (laughs) Other than maybe for us to know that John's just a little bit idiosyncratic, just a little, a little different. Maybe, you know, or maybe this was out of necessity. Maybe all he could find for food where he was staying was large grasshoppers. How many of you would love to eat locusts for lunch today? No, I didn't think so. Me neither. Okay. But this was John's diet, right? But here is someone who has come as a forerunner of the Messiah, and he's he has a ministry, and it's a new ministry, and he's baptizing people, again, for what purpose? For repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we need to unpack that a little bit. Some Bible scholars have tried to connect John's baptism with other ancient practices. And I'm just going to very quickly tell you the two most popular. What they were trying to do, this is throughout church history. This is, you have to go back a few hundred years for this. But they were trying to say, well, well, how did John get this idea? How did he get this idea to minister to people through baptizing them 
for the sake of repentance. And so they drew a couple correlations from other ancient practices. And, and these are just the, the most popular two that I found of, of Bible scholars that are writing about this. Uh, one is the ceremonial washings like those that they practiced at Qumran. And this is really tied into the fact that this area and where John is ministering is close to the caves of Qumran, and that it's very possible that John may have spent some time there. And so they said, oh, well, this is why he's doing this. He's doing this um, because he learned to do this from the people of Qumran and how they would do ceremonial washing. The other one is the idea of, of what the Jewish people did when Gentiles converted to Judaism, they would baptize them. The baptism of Gentiles is part of their conversion process to Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, to Judaism. So here's the thing. I can't take the time that would be necessary to really walk you through why these two uh, probably are not the case, but just if you want to study this on your own, of course, I would encourage that. But neither of these really seem to fit well theologically with the nature of John's baptism, with what John is doing here. John's baptism really seems to be a brand new practice for a brand new purpose. It's the beginning of that new thing that we we're talking about that God was doing at this time. And so Dr. Daniel Aiken writes and says, the sending of John the baptizer was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy signaling a new day in redemptive history. There's something new that's happening here, a new era of redemption. It is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This act symbolized the repentance, the, the act of baptism, symbolized the repentance of the person being baptized. The person being baptized publicly announced their repentance. And, and we should have some familiarity with this. Why? Because that's what we believe when we baptize people. If you have been baptized as a believer, what is that? One of the three things is we've had many, praise God, many children in the last couple of years here at Fellowship being baptized one of the things that I will tell them, I'll give them three reasons we should be baptized, right? Uh, one, let me review with you for those of you who may not be up on these, right? One, the Bible says so. That's a good reason to be baptized. Number two, it's identification with the death and the resurrection of our Lord. But number three is that it's a public proclamation of your faith, amen? And so this is... This is what we're seeing here. It's this public proclamation. These people are publicly announcing their repentance. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the pause button on that idea just for a second because Jesus hasn't come yet. We're, we're going to dig through this, and I'm going to explain this, but I just want you to see the distinction here. I want you to see the distinction between John's baptism and what we do. You see, we're on the other side of Jesus Christ, and, and so we baptize people after they have belief in Christ, after they've put their faith and trust in Christ. Jesus hadn't come yet. And so John is baptizing people as a public profession of their repentance. What is repentance? Most of you know this, but repentance is from the Greek word metanoia. 
Metanoia means a change of mind. Metanoia is a change of attitude. It's a change of action. Biblical repentance is a turning toward God and a reorienting of your life in submission to him. It's turning from your sin that you once loved and turning to God. You're reorienting your thoughts. You're reorienting your words, your actions, your attitude. Everything is changing. This is the idea of biblical repentance, turning away from the sin that you once were held in bondage to. There's much said concerning the need for repentance in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's much said concerning the need for repentance. Just one verse, Isaiah 55, 7. It's on the screen for you. Let the wicked forsake his way. This is 400 years before Christ, at least. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So repentance is not a new idea. Repentance is very much Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet is saying this. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man, his thoughts, right, return to the Lord. This is the biblical idea of repentance, turning away from sin and turning to God. But, but wait a minute here. John the Baptist is baptizing all these people, and they're turning from their sins, but Jesus had not come yet. So what good, the question that we should ask at this point, is what good is their repentance without belief in Jesus Christ? Is this saving repentance if it doesn't contain belief in Christ, the Savior? So what good is their repentance? Are you tracking with me, church? Now, we're getting a bit heady here, but, but this is so important theologically. So I'm not the first person, <laughs> I won't shock you. If you know me well, you know I'm not that bright. <laughs> I'm not the first person to think these thoughts. This goes way back. There was a great preacher way back in the day. He was kind of the, the Charles Spurgeon of the early church. Again, it saddens me that I had to go to seminary to learn a lot of this church history because our denomination has not taught 1,800 years of church history very well. Uh, we're good about the first century, and we're good about everything after 1900, but there were another 18 centuries in there that we really should know about as well. And, and the preacher's name was John Chrysostom. He was a bishop in the church in the fourth century. And again, I mean, he was. He was, he was the Charles Spurgeon of his era. And, and I say that to say that um, Chrysostom, even his name, meant golden mouth. It was more of a title that was put upon him. He, was, he could talk. <laughs> the man could preach, right? And, and there's a great story of him going head-to-head with the queen and, or the empress and, and getting himself into a lot of trouble in doing so. But John Chrysostom wrote about this. He wrote about the importance of repentance in those that John was baptizing. And the quote is there for you in the screen. What he argues to simplify it, is that it prepared them to believe in Jesus. John the Baptist's repentance prepared the ground. Shouldn't shock us. That's what Isaiah said, prepare the way for the Lord, right? And John's baptism of repentance prepared the hearts 
of the people that he baptized so that when Jesus came, they would believe. This is what John writes, John Chrysostom writes. He says, fittingly, therefore, when he said that he came preaching the baptism of repentance, he adds for the remission of sins. As if to say he persuaded them to repent of their sins so that later they might more easily receive pardon through believing in Christ. For unless brought to it by repentance, they would not seek for pardon. His, John's, baptism therefore served no other end than as a preparation for belief in Christ. The reason I'm drilling down on this with you, church, is I think there's something essential for us to understand theologically and what happens at our time of salvation. When you and I, when we first reached out to Christ and belief and trusted in him for our salvation, there's something very important that this unpacks for us. John Chrysostom here underscores that repentance and belief are both necessary for salvation. Repentance and belief are both absolutely necessary to be saved. Here, I've got to make this crystal clear. I don't want one single person walking out of this room in 10, 15 minutes not getting this point. Do not put your trust for your salvation in having once prayed the words to a prayer. I hear this. So often, I've heard it throughout my life, throughout my ministry. Well, well, so-and-so prayed the prayer. They prayed the prayer in vacation Bible school when they were a child. They prayed the prayer in Mrs. Jones's Sunday school class. Well, they once walked an aisle. I saw it. I was there. Do not put your eternal destiny... Because that what that may be what's hanging in the balance. In that. Don't trust in that. I fear too often that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached, and I am quite certain I've been guilty of doing it, as being only belief. As being only saying the words to a prayer without the need for repentance. Repentance is what drives us to belief. Repentance is what prepares our hearts so that we can believe. Why on earth would you even think that you need a Savior if you don't know what you are being saved from? Are you tracking with me, church? If you don't understand, if you do not understand that you are drowning in an ocean of your own sin, that you are hopelessly lost, hopelessly fallen, hopelessly dead in your sins, unless Jesus Christ saves you, then why would you reach out to him for salvation? Repentance drives belief. Being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. I didn't come up with that idea. Jesus did. John chapter 4, read it, meditate on it. Jesus says very clearly, 
Regeneration is what we call it theologically. Being born again. This is a work of the Spirit of God in our lives. It's Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones, those bones that were once dead and and gone, and, and all it is is just a pile of bones, and now spring back to life. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's our regeneration. It's what it means to be born again. And then we repent. The grace of God at work in our lives, brothers and sisters, caused us to hate the sin that we once loved. And we turned from it, and we turned to Jesus in belief. We trusted in him alone to save us because we knew we couldn't save ourselves. Amen? Are you with me this morning, church? We knew we could not save ourselves. And so we turn to Christ in belief. The result of authentic repentance and belief, then, is the forgiveness of God. The result of authentic repentance, turning from the sin we once loved that now we say we hate, we turn from it, and we turn to Christ in belief. The result of that is the forgiveness of God. The result of that is that now we are brought near to God. The result of that is eternal life. The result of that, church, is that one day we will see Jesus Christ face to face. That's the result of true repentance and belief. And repentance is an ongoing process. It's not something I did when I was 10 years old. It was, but that was just the start. When I was 10 and I accepted Jesus into my heart as a little boy, and I returned from my my sin and turned to God, it was the start of a process of repentance that would continue throughout the course of my life. And when I believed in him for the first time, it was the start of a process that would continue throughout the course of my life. Repentance and belief is ongoing. I think this is why Scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or Peter says, you're in the process of being saved. This is ongoing. It's not one and done. It's not, I get my fire insurance, and then I can move on with my life and do whatever the heck I want to do. That's not what the gospel is, church. It's not what Scripture teaches. This is ongoing. We repent and we believe, and we continue to repent, and we continue to believe. I mean, this is what the Apostle Peter says to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. I'm talking too much. Let me let Peter talk. He does a much better job. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 8. Right? Peter says to the crowd, this is right after the Holy Spirit falls, 3,000 people come to Christ. What a day. What a day. Peter's like, Peter went from hiding out, right? And then he sees the resurrected Jesus and he gets a little bit more bold. Now the Holy Spirit falls on him and he gives his first sermon that we know of anyways. And 3,000 people come to Christ. And, and, and look at what happens here in verses 37, 38. Now when they heard, who's they, the crowd, the 3,000 people, when they heard this, what's the this? What did they hear? The gospel. Peter just got done walking them through their history, and it culminated with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when the 3,000 people heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what, what shall we do? Help us. The crowd's saying to Peter, we believe, we know you're telling the truth right now, but we don't know what to do with it. We, we want to do the right thing here. We want to respond, but we don't know what that is. And Peter said to them, look at what he says, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance and belief, they go hand in hand. Brothers and sisters, if you're here today, if you are here today, and you have only believed in Christ, but you are still living in the bondage of your sin, do not walk out of this room this morning before you have repented of your sin. My prayer right now is that if that's anyone in this room, the Holy Spirit is not letting you go. My prayer is that you are so uncomfortable right now that your biggest wish is, Pastor, would you please move on with the message? Would you stop talking about this? I, I want you that uncomfortable. Because I believe that that is the Holy Spirit driving into you, that that sin that you have loved for your lifetime, that now you are beginning to hate. And you want to turn away from it. And you want to turn away from that sin, and you want to turn to Christ. And if that is you, you do not need, I will not give you the opportunity to walk the aisle today. I will not give you the opportunity to raise your hand. And, and here's why. You've probably done that before. But do you hate your sin? That's the part that's been missing. You need to repent and to turn from your sin, and then you need to keep turning from that sin. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you hate the sin that you once loved? Are you turning from it and to Jesus in belief, trusting in him to save you? Well, our time's almost gone, so let's just review, and then I'll give you the final point quickly. First of all, the ministry of John the Baptist was the beginning of the gospel. Second, the ministry of John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Third, the ministry of John the Baptist was a new practice for a new purpose. And again, that purpose is to call the people to repentance so that they would be prepared to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved. The fourth and, and final thing that I'll share from this text this morning is that the ministry of John the Baptist was to shine a bright light on Jesus Christ. This is what John was all about. This is what John was all about. And again, we would have to leave Mark's gospel, and I'm not going to take the time to do that, to show you a beautiful passage where basically John the Baptist says, I must diminish, he must increase. I've accomplished my mission, John the Baptist says. Uh, my, my goal was to shine a light on Jesus Christ, and that's what I've done. And, and we see this here in verses 7 through 8, and, and I just want to close by talking about two attributes that we see in this man that made him and it's just an incredible leader in the church. Really the first, the first as the first gospel proclaimer. But here in verses 7 through 8, it says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's intent is not self-glory, Quite to the contrary, his focus is on the one who will follow him in ministry. The, the image that he gives here to us in these verses conveys this deep sense of humility before Christ. Uh, Mark Strauss, let me show you this quote from Dr. Strauss. 
He writes, removing a person's sandals was a lowly task appropriate only for a slave. The Talmud, if you're not, if you're not familiar with the Talmud, it's basically a, a commentary on the Old Testament. The Talmud says that the disciple of a rabbi must do for him everything that a slave would do, except removing his shoes. A disciple did not have to remove the shoes of his master. That was considered too lowly. Only if you had a slave would that, would that happen. And so what is John doing here? John places himself below the level of the Messiah's slave. So who was John the Baptist as we close? John was the first preacher in the New Testament. He was the first proclaimer of the good news concerning Jesus Christ. So what should we learn from him? Because I think he is, you know, there are a lot of people in Scripture that we only learn from their negative examples, right? Uh, Like, for instance, Samson. Samson's best moment, he dies in a heap of rubble with his eyes gouged out. You know, he's not someone whose life I really want to imitate so much right? But there are many people in the Old and New Testaments that we ought to try to imitate, and John the Baptist is certainly one of those. So what should we learn from him? Well, I would suggest that we strive to be like John the Baptist in two ways, in faithfulness and humility, in faithfulness and humility. And I'll give you these very, very quick. Uh, let me give you an example. If I, What I probably read second uh, in quantity compared to biblical literature. I probably read Bible commentaries and theology the most, but my second area of reading that I really like is business literature. And and so one book that I gleaned a lot from years ago was Jim Collins' best-selling book on business, Good to Great. And, And Jim Collins here defines the highest level of leadership. Look at that quote. This is the highest level of leadership, according to Jim Collins. A paradoxical combination a personal humility, and professional will. Now, I'd love to say that Jim Collins stole this from the pages of Scripture, but I believe he's a Buddhist, which is sad. But this is really a principle from the pages of Scripture, the combination of personal humility and professional will. When these two attributes, friends, are combined, great things happen. When people have personal humility and professional will, great things happen. John the Baptist was that kind of leader. He was very faithful. He had professional will. If you read the book, Good to Great, you would see that that's how Jim Collins unpacks it. A faithfulness to the cause, a faithfulness to the mission. John was incredibly faithful. He was 100% committed to the mission of calling people to repent and to preparing them to believe. And then the other thing about John the Baptist, when we see this in verses 7 and 8, is that he was completely humble. His focus was not on himself. He was not self-focused. He was absolutely 100% focused on Jesus Christ. These two things If we can get a handle on these two things and learn from John the Baptist with these, 100% focused on the mission, 100% humility. It's not about me. It's about Christ. Great things happen. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up and join me. We're just going to sing in response. And as they come and they prepare to lead us, I just want to read to you what 
another pastor, J.C. Ryle, um, he was just a tremendous man of God from the 19th century. And this is what Pastor Ryle writes. He says, the principal work of every faithful minister of the gospel is to set the Lord Jesus fully before his people and to show them his fullness and his power to save. The next great work he has to do is to set before them the work of the Holy Spirit and the need of being born again and inwardly baptized by his grace. These two mighty truths appear to have been frequently on the lips of John the Baptist. It would be well for the church and the world if there were more ministers like him. Amen. I completely agree with Pastor Ryle. And my prayer is that that would define our ministry here at Fellowship, that we would be a church that would faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ, that he is exactly who he claimed to be, and that we would preach the gospel so that the Holy Spirit would fall on people, that they would believe and repent, and that they would come into the great salvation that Jesus Christ is offering us. Amen, church? Amen. Let's, would you stand up? Let's sing together.